Chapter 41 They're coming, said Scarlet, snarling as she backed away from the window. Her first shot had been low, hitting Amory's thigh, when she'd been aiming for his head. Her second shot had hit the fountain, useless, before the crowd had been too thick to keep firing. She had heard at least three shots coming from Thorn, but didn't know if he'd had any more success. Cinder and Wolf were like hogs in a slaughterhouse down there, and she and Thorn would be close behind if they didn't get out, now. Thorn grabbed the helmet he'd stolen from the guard and pulled it over his head, transforming from her friend to her enemy. She hoped the transformation was as convincing to the Lunars. Give me your gun, he said. She hesitated only briefly before handing it over. Thorn pocketed it and grabbed her elbow, dragging her toward the staircase. They were on the first landing when footsteps stampeded through the bottom level. Found one, Thorn yelled, making her jump. He held his gun to Scarlet's head as he dragged her to the bottom of the stairs. Four guards surrounded them. There were two gunmen. The other might have run, but check the top floors to be sure. I've got this one. Scarlet pretended to thrash against his hold as Thorn dragged her past the guards, oozing authority. The guards charged up the stairs. The second they were gone, Thorn swiveled around and released her. They ran for the back exit, dashing into the alley behind the factory. Already the brawl was over, judging from the dreadful silence that filled the dome. Thorn turned away from the factory, but Scarlet grabbed his arm. Wait. He looked back, his gaze harsh, but maybe that was the effect of the face mask. We have to try to help them, she said. His brow wrinkled. You saw how easily they took down Cinder and Wolf, and you think we can do something to help them? She didn't. She honestly didn't. But if she didn't even try, give me my gun, she said, holding out her hand. Thorn stared at her. Give me my gun. With a huff, he pulled the gun from his waistband and shoved it into her palm. Scarlet spun away, not sure if he would follow. He did. When they turned the first corner, she could see the square. The citizens who had risen up to attack Cinder and Wolf were all kneeling again, placid, as if the fight hadn't even happened. Scarlet wondered how long it would take those guards to search the factory. She wondered if she was crazy not to turn and run. The gun was warm in her hand, the handle leaving imprints in her skin. There had been a time when holding a weapon had offered a sense of protection. But that comfort was compromised knowing how easily Lunars could turn the weapon against her. Still, if she could get close enough, she could get off a shot or two, and this time, she wouldn't miss. How close could she get before they detected her? Would the size of the crowd help to hide her, or would she be caught up in the same brainwashing trick as soon as she got too close? She didn't know how it worked or how vulnerable she would be. She was wishing now that she had asked Cinder more about it when she'd had the chance. They moved stealthily. Thorn silent behind her. She stopped when she could pick out Wolf and Cinder among their enemies. They both had their hands bound behind them now. Wolf's shoulders were hunched. He was looking at the ground. No, she realized with a shudder. He was looking at Maha. Fury ignited in her gut. They had taken everything from Wolf. His freedom, his childhood, his entire family, and... He had done nothing, nothing to deserve it. She wanted to avenge him, 
to take him away from this horrible dust-mottled place, to offer him a life of blue skies and tomatoes and peace. Scarlet tightened her grip on the gun, feeling the familiar press of the trigger. But she was too far away. She had a better chance of hitting an ally than an enemy from here. Heart-thumping, Scarlet scrutinized the narrow alley, estimating how many steps she could take and still stay hidden. There was a doorway set into the factory wall she could duck into, but being seen wasn't her biggest concern. Not when Lunars could sense her. Letting out a slow breath, she raised the gun and lined up the sights, targeting Amory's heart. She held her aim for three breaths before she huffed and lowered the weapon again. She'd been right before, too far away. Again, she considered moving closer. Again, she hesitated. Then, she noticed a shift in Wolf's posture. His head shifted in her direction. It was a subtle change, almost unremarkable. He didn't look at her. He didn't make any move to suggest he had picked out her scent among all these people. But Scarlet knew he had. There was a tension to his shoulders that hadn't been there moments before. Her heart somersaulted. She imagined being caught, Wolf watching as they put a gun to her head. Wolf, powerless, as she was handed another hatchet. Wolf, whose mother had just been killed in front of him, while he could do nothing to stop it. Scarlet's body shook as the memory of her grandmother's death hit her like a hammer to her skull. The despair that had engulfed her. All the fury and hatred and the certainty thumping into her again and again that she should have been able to stop it. But she couldn't have stopped it. Just like Wolf couldn't have protected Maha. Just like he wouldn't be able to protect her. She couldn't do that to him. Scarlet scrunched up her face, choking back a violent scream. Don't react, Scarlet, she told herself. Don't react. She lowered the gun and stepped back. She looked up at Thorn, and though there was pain etched into his brow too, he nodded in understanding. Amory's calm voice drifted toward them. Lynn Cinder will be tried and no doubt executed for her crimes against the crown. It is by the queen's mercy alone that I will spare the rest of your lives. But take note that anyone caught speaking of the cyborg and her treasonous plots or conducting any sort of rebellious activity will receive a swift punishment. Scarlet glanced back in time to see a guard shove Wolf hard between the shoulder blades, and he and Cinder were led away. Princess, Iko said, keeping her volume as loud as she dared, which wasn't all that loud considering... Princess, where are you? She backtracked through the house, scouring each room for the third time. Winter was not in any cabinets or closets. She was not under Maha's bed. She was not in the tiny shower or... Well, that was it. Those were the only hiding places. It was a really small house and Winter wasn't there. I go return to the living room feeling the rumble of her fan in her chest, air escaping through the porous fibers in her back. She was still overheated from the run through the sector, dodging in and out of abandoned homes in an attempt to be discreet. Had Winter already been found? Was she too late? She didn't have the answers. 
She forced herself to pause and organize the information she did have. Lavana's minions were in RM9. They had rounded up every citizen, and she was relatively certain it wasn't to throw them a party. Cinder and the others were still in that factory, as far as she knew, and she would have no way of knowing if they were safe until she saw them again. She did not know where Princess Winter was. She considered her options. Sneaking back to the factory to rejoin Cinder seemed like a logical next step, but she would be endangering herself by doing so. This didn't bother her so much as her fear of falling into enemy hands. Lunars didn't seem to know much about Android data systems, but if they managed to dissect her programming, they would find a lot of confidential information about Cinder and her strategies. She could wait for her friends to return, safe and unharmed, but this option went against her most basic programming. She despised being useless. She was still debating when she heard heavy footsteps outside the front door. Iko startled and ran into the kitchen, tucking herself beneath a counter. The door banged open. Someone entered, and Iko picked out the slight auditory differences in the footsteps. Three intruders were inside the house. They stopped in the main room. A male voice said, The database confirms this as the residence of Maha Kesley. A short silence was followed by a female voice. I sense someone, but their energy is faint, perhaps muffled behind a barrier of some sort. Iko frowned. Surely they couldn't sense her. Cinder had always insisted that Iko could not be detected by the lunar gift, given that she didn't produce bioelectricity. In my experience with the cyborg, said a third voice, also male, she does not always react as one would expect to mind control and manipulation. Perhaps she is capable of disguising her energy as well. Perhaps, said the woman, though she sounded doubtful. Kinney, search the perimeter and neighboring homes. Jericho, check the bedrooms. Yes, Mistress Pereira. The footsteps scattered. The front door shut again. It was a small house. Only moments had passed before the woman entered the tiny kitchen, and Iko saw the fluttering sleeves of a red thaumaturge coat. She came to stand in the center of the closet-sized kitchen. So close, Iko could have touched her. But she didn't look down or bother to open any of the cupboards. From her crouched position, Iko stared up at the woman's profile. Her gray hair was cut in a bob, and though she was one of the older thaumaturges Iko had seen, she was still beautiful, with sharp cheekbones and full lips. Her hands were tucked into her sleeves. She stood still for a long moment, her brow drawn. Iko suspected she was searching for more traces of bioelectricity, and it became clear she was not about to notice Iko beside her. Iko held still, glad she didn't have to stifle her breathing. Good stars above. When she'd been trapped in the spaceship closet with Cinder and the others, the noise of their combined breaths had been ear-splitting. But then, her fan kicked in again. The woman glanced down and started. Iko raised a hand in greeting. Hello. The thaumaturge studied her for a long, long moment before she stammered. A shell? Close. Iko snatched a dish towel off the counter and lunged for the woman. A yelp escaped before Iko pressed the towel against her face, stifling the scream. The thaumaturge thrashed, but Iko held her firm against the wall, biting back her instinctive apology as she watched the woman's face pale.
Her eyes widen in panic. Just pass out, Iko said, trying to sound comforting. And I'll let you go. Hey! She snapped her head around as a royal guard spotted them through the kitchen window. He ran for the back door and swung it open and... Holy stars almighty. She'd always thought Kai was the most attractive human specimen she had ever seen. But this man was devastatingly beautiful, with tan skin and roguish wavy hair, and he was, he was pointing a gun at her. Iko yanked the thaumaturge in front of her at the same moment he pulled the trigger. The bullet hit the woman somewhere in her torso and she collapsed, already weak from Iko's suffocation. Iko dropped the woman and hurled herself over the body, grappling for the guard's gun. He swung around, knocking her back into the counter. The impact reverberated through Iko's limbs. The guard yanked the gun away and swung his opposite fist toward Iko's face. Her head snapped back, and she stumbled two, three steps before colliding with the stove. The guard cursed, shaking out his hand. Iko was just thinking that she should have installed some martial arts programming when a second gunshot jolted through her audio receptors. She flinched and clamped her hands over her ears, dialing down the volume even though it was too late. When her thoughts cleared, she saw the guard staring at her with an open mouth and saucer-wide eyes, his hands still gripping the gun. What, what are you? She looked down. There was a hole in her skin, revealing sparking wires and frayed synthetic skin tissue. She groaned. I just had that replaced. You're, the guard took a step back. I heard of earthen machines that could, that were, but you. His face contorted, and Iko had spent enough time analyzing facial muscles to recognize this expression as complete, unbridled disgust. Indignation flared inside her, probably seeping out through the new hole in her chest. It's not polite to stare, you know. A form appeared in the door leading to the main room, another guard and this one Iko recognized as one from Lavana's personal entourage. He had been part of the team that had accosted them on the rooftop in New Beijing. What happened? He barked, taking in the fallen thaumaturge and the pretty guard's lowered weapon, and Iko. Recognition flitted through his eyes, and he grinned. Nice find, Kinney. I guess this trip wasn't as pointless as I thought. He stepped over the thaumaturge's body. Iko raised her fists, trying to recall all those fighting pointers Wolf had given Cinder. Where's the cyborg? asked the guard. Iko snarled at him. Bite me. He raised an eyebrow. Tempt me. Sir Solace, said the other guard, Kinney. She's not. It isn't human. Clearly, he drawled, glancing at the bullet hole in her chest cavity. I guess we'll have to get creative with how we extract information from her. I mean, it. He swung for her. Iko ducked and swung back, but he trapped her easily. Before her processor could catch up, he had her hands locked behind her back. Iko struggled, trying to stomp on the arch of his foot, but he evaded every attempt. He was laughing as he bound her hands and spun her back to face him. All that earth and technology, he said, pulling aside the fabric of her shirt to pick at the destroyed skin fibers. Yet you're somehow still completely worthless. Hot anger turned her vision red. I'll show you worthless. 
Before she could show him anything, though, a banshee's scream filled the kitchen, and a kitchen knife slashed toward Jericho's shoulder. He gasped and dodged. The blade cut through his sleeve, leaving a bright red gash. Iko stumbled back. Jericho spun around and slammed the attacker against the wall, holding her throat in one hand, while the other wrestled for her wrist, securing her knife hand. Winter didn't let go of the knife or her wild-eyed loathing. She brought her knee up, right between his legs. Jericho grunted and pulled her away from the wall, just to slam her back again. This time, Winter wheezed, the air pushed out of her lungs. Kinney, watch the android, Jericho said through his teeth. Iko swiveled her attention from Princess Winter to the too handsome to be such a jerk guard, but Kinney no longer cared about her. His face was horrified as Jericho held the princess by her throat. That's Princess Winter. Unhand her. A humorless laugh erupted from Jericho. I know who she is, idiot. Just like I know she's supposed to be dead. I heard she was dead too, but clearly she's not. Release her. Rolling his eyes, Jericho turned and dragged Winter off the wall. No, she's supposed to be dead. The queen ordered her to be killed. But it seems like someone didn't have the stomach for it. Winter slumped forward, but he dragged her back up, holding her against his chest. What a lucky catch. I've been waiting to have you alone for years. But that annoying Sir Clay was always hanging around like a vulture on dead meat. Jericho dragged his thumb along Winter's jaw. Doesn't look like he's here now, does it, princess? Winter's lashes fluttered. Her eyes were dazed as she looked at Kinney. You! Hey! Jericho forced her chin around to face him. You're my prize, princess. So, what reward do you think I'll get for bringing your dead body to the queen? I don't think she'll care what state it's in. And as an added bonus, I can prove that your boyfriend is a traitor after all. Iko yanked at her hands, trying to disconnect her thumbs from their sockets and shimmy out of the cords, but she couldn't get enough leverage with her arms so tightly bound. She was about to throw herself forward and ram into Jericho's spine with all the force her metal skull could muster when Winter collapsed as limp as a ragdoll. Jericho startled, barely able to regain his hold on her. In the same moment, Winter plunged the forgotten knife into his side. Jericho yelled and released her. Winter stumbled out of his grip, but he grabbed her wrist and yanked her back, then backhanded her across the face. Winter fell. Her head crashed into the edge of the counter. Iko screamed as the princess's body crumpled to the floor. With a stream of curses, Jericho wrapped his hand around the knife handle, but didn't pull it from the wound. His face was as red as his hair as he snarled at the princess. What a stupid crazy. He hauled back his foot to kick her when Kinney raised his gun and fired. The shot knocked Jericho against the wall. Iko recoiled. No matter how many brawls and fights she found herself in, she was always stunned at how much more horrible the reality was to the net dramas. Even the death of such a despicable guard, his face contorted in disbelief as the life drained out of it, made her grimace. The silence that followed felt like it had taken over the whole sector, and Iko questioned if that last gunshot had permanently damaged her audio. The guard was staring at the gun in his hand as if he'd never seen it before. That's the first time I pulled the trigger myself. 
Inhaling deeply, he set his gun on the counter and crouched over Princess Winter. He reached back to inspect her head. His fingers came away bloodied. She's breathing, he said, but she might have a concussion. Iko's processor stumbled. Whose side are you on? He looked up. His nose twitched as he took in the bullet hole again, but his gaze didn't linger on it. We were told the princess was dead. I thought another guard killed her. Iko arranged the folds of her shirt to cover her wound. A guard named Jason was ordered by the queen to kill her, but he helped her escape instead. Jason Clay. She narrowed her eyes. Why did you help us? With a tense brow, Kinney eased the princess back on the floor. There was blood everywhere, from the thaumaturge, from Jericho, from Winter. I helped her, said Kinney, as if the distinction was important. He found the dish towel Iko had started to suffocate Mistress Pereira with and tied it around Winter's head, bandaging the wound as well as he could. When he finished, he stood and picked up the bloodied knife. Iko stepped back. He paused. Do you want me to cut those cords or not? She searched his face, wishing she didn't feel so compelled to keep staring at it. Yes, please? She turned around, and he made quick work of freeing her. She half expected to find split skin fragments when she held up her hands, but the blade hadn't so much as nicked her. Here's what's going to happen, said Kinney, gesturing to the gun still on the counter. Iko could tell he didn't like looking at her. He kept finding reasons to look away. I'm going to make up a report telling them you wrestled the gun away from me and killed Mistress Pereira and Sir Solace, then managed to get away. I'm not going to tell them anything about seeing the princess. They don't even have to know she's still alive. He pointed at her nose, daring to hold her gaze for longer than half a second. And you are going to get her far away from here. Keep her hidden. She planted her hands on her hips. And here we were just keeping her hauled up in a tiny little house in a completely random mining sector. Why didn't it ever occur to us to try and keep her hidden? Kinney's face was unreadable for a long moment before he asked. You understand sarcasm? Of course I understand sarcasm, she spat. It's not like it's theoretical physics, is it? The guard's jaw worked for a moment before he shook his head and turned away. Just take care of her. He checked on the princess one more time, and then he was gone. Chapter 42 Cinder and Wolf were taken to an underground cargo port crowded with battered delivery ships and three royal pods, which explained why the arrival of their enemies hadn't set off any alarms. Cinder had only posted watch at the maglev platforms. She berated herself, hoping she would someday have a chance to learn from this mistake. With her wrists shackled, Cinder felt like her arms might come out of their sockets. The wolf walked behind her. She could sense his energy, ragged and lethal, shuddering with fear for Scarlet, hollow and devastated over what they had done to Maha. A royal guard was waiting. His hair was disheveled, but his expression was empty. Report, said Amory. He was walking with a limp, and Cinder fantasized about kicking him right where the bullet had entered. Mistress Pereira and Sir Solace are dead. Amory lifted an eyebrow, 
He seemed nothing but curious at this unexpected statement. How? We were ambushed inside the Kessley house by an earthen android, said the guard. Cinder's heart leapt. A brawl ensued. The android was immune to mental manipulation. Nor did bullets do much to affect her. She, it, suffocated Mistress Pereira, after which I engaged it in hand-to-hand combat. It disarmed me and used my gun to shoot both Sir Solace and Arthometurge. While the android was distracted, I managed to lodge my knife into its back, severing its spine of sorts. That successfully disabled it. A headache pulsed behind Cinder's eyes, the sign of tears that would never come. First Maha, now Aiko. With the threat removed, I conducted a thorough search of the rest of the house and surrounding properties. The guard continued, I found no other accomplices. It was a small relief. Winter, at least, had not been discovered, and as far as Cinder could tell, neither had Thorn nor Scarlet. Amory stared a long time at the guard, as if he were searching for a flaw in the story. What became of the android? I found and destroyed what I believe was its power source, said the guard. I threw what was left into the public trash compactor. No, Cinder staggered, but the guard behind her hefted her back to her feet. The guard cast her the briefest of glances before adding, I left the bodies behind. Shall I return for them? Amory waved a careless hand. We will send a crew. New clomping emanated from the stairwell. Still shuddering from the news of Iko's loss, Cinder barely managed to lift her head. She glimpsed Wolf watching her. Though his eyes were sympathetic, his jaw was tense with anger. They had both lost someone dear to them today. Cinder felt like she was suffocating, like her ribs were tightening around her lungs, but she pulled strength from Wolf's presence. Her fury started to build. Her sorrow became dry kindling, quick to ignite. She found her footing again, and though she couldn't extricate herself from the guard's hold, she made herself stand tall. The footsteps turned into a black-coated male thaumaturge and more guards. We have not found any more accomplices or discerned who was firing on us from the factory windows, the new thaumaturge said. It's possible they retreated into a different sector. They might reattempt the insurgents elsewhere. Amory dismissed the thaumaturge's concern with a smile. Let them try. We are not afraid of our own people, his dark eyes settled on Cinder. This little rebellion is over. Cinder lifted her head but a low growl stole Amory's attention away from her. He turned to Wolf, whose sharp canines were bared. He looked feral and bloodthirsty, ready to tear their captors apart. In response, Amory laughed. Stepping forward, he cupped Wolf's chin in his fingers and squeezed until Wolf's cheeks puckered. Besides, how could we ever lose when we have beasts such as this at our disposal? Releasing Wolf's chin, Amory slapped him tenderly on the cheek. Alpha Kessley, isn't it? I was there for the Queen's tournament, the day you won your position in your pack. It seems you've been led astray by these earthens. What shall we do about that? Wolf watched the thaumaturge with a hatred that could have burned the skin off his bones. Without warning, one of his knees gave way, and he knelt before Amory. Cinder flinched, feeling the shock as if it were ricocheting through her own joints. 
In another moment, Wolf had bowed his head. It was sickening to watch. All that strength, all that fury, reduced to nothing more than a marionette. It was even more sickening because she knew how much mental strength and focus it took to force Wolf to do anything. She'd barely begun to master such a skill, yet Amory showed no sign of difficulty at all. That's a good dog, said Amory, patting Wolf's head. We will take you before Her Majesty and let her decide the punishment for your betrayal. Does that suit you, Alpha Kessley? Wolf's voice was throaty and robotic as it said, Yes, master. As I thought, Amory cast his attention to the rest of his entourage. Should there be any lingering pockets of rebellion, ensure they are swiftly stamped out. There is to be a royal wedding tomorrow, and we will not tolerate any more disturbances. After the other thaumaturges had bowed and scattered, Amory tucked his hands into his sleeves and turned back to Cinder. Which only leaves the question of what shall be done with you. She held his gaze. You could bow before me as your true queen. Amory's lips curled upward. Kill her. It happened so fast, one of the guards whipped the gun from his holster, held it against Cinder's forehead, released the safety, squeezed the trigger. Cinder sucked in a final breath. Stop, I've changed my mind. Just as quickly, the gun was stashed back at the guard's waist. Cinder sagged, her head spinning from the rush of fear. My queen has requested the pleasure of deciding your fate herself. I think I will suggest she offer your head to Emperor Kaito as a wedding gift. Thaumaturge Park. He turned to the red-coated woman who had spoken. She had her palm on the side paneling of a small pod ship. This is a royal pod, she said, and it looks to have arrived recently. She held up her hand. Hardly any dust. Odd for it to be way out here. Amory made a disinterested sound. I am not surprised there are thieves about, but it could help us locate the missing rebels. Run a search on its tracking number and see what you find. He gestured to some of the guards. Cinder and Wolf were marched into his ship and forced onto separate benches. No words were spoken as the engines started to rumble. Within moments, they were heading back toward Artemisia. Amory kept giving orders, something about medical care and bullet wounds, designating a new captain of the guard and informing the queen of casualties and prisoners. Cinder's thoughts became muddled, and she found herself staring at the profile of the guard who had killed Aiko. Disabled it, he'd said. Thrown it into a trash compactor. The visions rolled through her head again and again, a knife ripping through Aiko's spine, Maha's broken fingers, the sector residents kneeling at Amory's feet. Her hatred warmed, simmered at first low in her gut, but by the time Artemisia came into view, she was boiling. The ship dropped into Artemisia's underground port. The ramp was lowered and a guard hauled her up with a squeeze so painful she had to bite back a cry of pain. Wolf's heavy steps labored behind her. She was greeted with a slew of new threats. A dozen guards, their bioelectricity as malleable as factory new personality chips, and three more thaumaturges, whose mental strength always had a certain iron rigidity to it. Her finger twitched, and she wondered how quickly she could have a bullet loaded in her finger, and how long it would take to kill them all. She was back in Artemisia. If she escaped, 
She could go rogue, a lone assassin hunting down the queen. It was just a fantasy. Her hands were still bound. She squeezed her cyborg hand into a useless fist instead. Thaumaturge Park? Cinder peered at the guard who had killed Iko. Sir Kinney, permission to seek immediate medical attention. Amory's attention darted down to the blood on his uniform. There was a lot of it, though Cinder couldn't tell where exactly he'd been hurt. Fine, he said. Report back as soon as you are cleared for service. The guard fisted a hand against his chest, then paced off in the opposite direction. Cinder and Wolf were shoved away from the docks and into a maze of corridors. Not knowing what else to do, Cinder tried to focus on where they were taking her. She counted her steps, creating a rudimentary map in her head and piecing it together with what she knew of the Queen's palace. They were led to an elevator bank, flanked by more guards. There was a pause in which Amory conversed with another thaumaturge, and though Cinder adjusted her audio interface, she could only pick up a few words. Alpha and soldier at first, then insurgents and RM9 and cyborg. Amory gestured, and they started pulling Wolf away down a separate corridor. Wait, said Cinder, panic flooding her veins. Where are you taking him? Wolf growled and strained against his captors, but any fight was tempered beneath the mind control. Wolf, no, Cinder stumbled forward, but her arms held her back. The bindings burned against her wrists. Wolf! It was for nothing. They turned a corner and Wolf was gone, leaving Cinder panting and shaking. She felt wetness on her right wrist where the cords had cut into the skin. She wasn't so naive to think she and Wolf could have made a successful stand against their enemies, but she hadn't imagined being parted from him so soon. She might never see him again. She might never see any of them again. As she was forced into the elevator, it occurred to Cinder that, for the first time since this had all begun, she was alone. I'm sorry we aren't able to give you a private tour, said Amory, but we're rather preoccupied with wedding preparations. I'm sure you understand. The elevator door shut, and they began to descend and descend. Cinder felt like she was being taken to her tomb. When the doors opened again, she was prodded forward with a jab at her back. She was taken through a dim corridor with rough walls and the smell of stale air and urine and bodies. Her nose wrinkled in disgust. I hope you find your accommodations acceptable for such a distinguished guest as yourself, Amory continued, as if the scent didn't bother him. I understand you're already accustomed to prison cells. I wouldn't say that, said Cinder. The last one could only hold me for a day. This one will be much more suited to you, I'm sure. This prison of rocks and caves was nothing like the modern structure in New Beijing. This was dreary and suffocating. And worst of all, Cinder had no blueprint for it. She had no accurate map, no plan, no means of judging her location in relation to, well, anything. They paused, and there was the jangling of keys and the creak of ancient metal hinges. An old-fashioned padlock. How quaint. If she could reach it from within the cell, she could have that picked in under 30 seconds. The thought offered a twitch of hope, at least. As the door opened, the smell intensified, 
Her lungs tried to expel the air as soon as they took it in. You will remain here until Her Majesty the Queen has time to see to your trial and execution, said Amory. Can't wait, Cinder muttered. Of course, you'll want to use the time to get reacquainted. Reacquainted? A guard cut away the bindings on her wrist and shoved her forward. Her shoulder hit the edge of the iron door as she stumbled into the cell, catching herself on a rough wall. Someone whimpered, and she froze. She wasn't alone. Do enjoy your stay, princess. The door slammed shut, the noise of it vibrating through Cinder's bone. The cell was small, with a high barred window in the iron door that allowed just enough light from the hallway that she could make out a bucket on the floor, the source of the rank smell. Two people were huddled together in the far corner. Cinder gaped at them, willing her eyes to adjust. She turned on the built-in flashlight in her hand. The two figures shuddered and cowered behind their arms. Recognition hit her like a right hook, and she fell against the wall. Audrey. Pearl. You can't be serious. Her stepmother and stepsister were quaking with fear and staring up at her with wide eyes. Cinder couldn't begin to imagine why they were here, what Lavana wanted with them. Then it hit her. She would be stuck here, with them, until her execution. She dragged a hand down her face, hating Lavana so very, very much. Chapter 43 In Winter's dream, she was standing in the kitchen of a little farmhouse on Earth. Or what her imagination thought a farmhouse on Earth must be like. She knew it was Scarlet's home, though she'd never been there. She stood at a sink overflowing with dirty dishes. It was vital that she get them all clean before everyone came home. But every time she lifted a plate from the suds, it shattered in her hands. Her fingers were bleeding from all the shards, turning the bubbles red. When the seventh plate cracked in her hands, she stepped back from the sink with an overwhelming sense of failure. Why could she never do anything right? Even this simple task turned to disaster at her touch. She fell to her knees and began to weep. The blood and soap puddled in her lap. A shadow fell across her and she looked up. Her stepmother stood in the doorway, acres of fields and Earth's blue-blue sky laid out behind her. She was holding a bejeweled comb in her hand, and though she was beautiful, her smile was cruel. They love you, said Lavana, as if they'd been in the middle of a conversation. She came into the kitchen. The hem of her regal gown trailed through the soapy water on the floor. They protect you. And what have you ever done to deserve that? They love me, Winter agreed, though she wasn't sure who they were talking about. The people of Luna, Cinder and her allies, Jason. And they will all pay the price for their adoration. Coming around behind her, Lavana began brushing the comb through Winter's curls. The touch was gentle, motherly even. Winter wanted to weep with longing, how she had yearned for a mother's touch. But there was fear in her too. Lavana had never been so kind. They will come to know all your weaknesses. They will learn how flawed you truly are. 
Then they will see how you never deserved any of this. A sharp pain stitched into her skull as one of the comb's tines dug into Winter's scalp. She gasped. Her head started to throb. A growl drew her attention back to the door. Ryu was standing with his paws spread in defense, his teeth bared. Lavana stopped brushing. And what do you care? She betrayed you too. She allowed that guard to sacrifice your life for hers. You cannot ignore her selfishness. Ryu prowled closer, his yellow eyes flashed. Lavana dropped the comb and stepped back. You are an animal, a killer, a predator. What do you know of loyalty or love? Ryu hushed and lowered his head as if chastised. Winter's heart opened to him. She could tell he missed her. He wanted to play fetch, not be berated by the queen's cruel words. Winter raised her hand to her stinging scalp. Her hair was damp. She looked down at the fallen comb and saw that the pool of dishwater had become thick with blood. You are wrong, she said, turning her face up to the queen. You are the killer. You are the predator. You know nothing of loyalty or love. She held her hand out to Ryu, who sniffed it, before settling his warm head down on her knee. We may be animals, but we will never again live in your cage. When she opened her eyes, the farmhouse was gone replaced with shabby walls and furniture and window curtains covered in regolith dust. Her eyelids flickered as she tried to ward off the heavy drowsiness and a throbbing headache. She could still smell the pool of blood, and her scalp still ached from where the comb had punctured it. No, from where she had hit the corner of the table. Someone had laid her out on the sofa, her feet dangled off the edge. Hey, crazy. Winter pushed her hair out of her face and found a towel wrapped around her head. She looked up at Scarlet, who had brought a dining chair into the front room and was sitting on it backward with her arms settled on its back. She was wearing her hooded sweatshirt again. Most of the stains were gone, but it still looked worn and ragged. So did she, actually. Her eyes were rimmed with red, her face blotchy and flushed. Her usual ferocity had dulled to bitter exhaustion. Aiko told us what happened, she said, her voice withered and cracked. I'm sorry I wasn't here, but I'm glad she was. Winter sat up. Aiko sat cross-legged on the floor, picking at a thread of skin fiber that had been torn open in her chest. Thorn was standing with his back against the main door. He was wearing the partial uniform of a lunar guard, and she had to look twice to be sure it was him. She listened, but the house was otherwise silent. Winter felt a flush of dread. Where are the others? The sector was attacked, said Thorn. They took Wolf and Cinder, and they... They killed Maha. Scarlet wrapped her arms tighter around the back of the chair. We can't stay here. We moved the bodies of that guard and thaumaturge into the back bedroom, but I bet someone will come for them. The guard who helped us, said Aiko, he told me to take her highness into hiding. I know he meant to take her out of this sector, but where else can we go? I've been reviewing the maps of Luna, and the only places that seem like they might offer more security are underground. At least, we would be away from people, and surveillance isn't as strict in the tunnels and mines, but it doesn't seem like a perfect solution either. There is no perfect solution, said Winter. 
sinking against the sofa's lumpy cushion. The queen will find me anywhere I go. She finds me even in my dreams. You're not the only one having nightmares, Thorn muttered. But there's still a chance that a lot of angry civilians are going to show up in Artemisia four days from now, demanding a new regime. Is there any chance Cinder will still be alive by then? They traded glances, but there was not much optimism. Official executions take place in Artemisia Palace, said Winter. That's where they'll take her. Why not just kill her here, asked Scarlet. Why go through the trouble? Thorn shook his head. Lavana wants to execute her in a way that will show the futility of this uprising. You think she plans on broadcasting it? said Iko. I guarantee she does, said Winter. The queen is fond of public executions. They are an effective way to break the will of any citizens who might be feeling rebellious. Thorn rubbed his brow. She'll kill her soon then. Tonight, maybe, or tomorrow. Nothing like an execution on your wedding day. Winter drew her knees to her chest, squeezing them tight. The day had started so hopeful for her companions. The broadcast had gone as planned. The people had answered her call. But now, it was over. Lavana was still the queen. Dear Celine would soon be dead. And Jason, too, if he wasn't already. Stop it. She lifted her head, not so much at Thorne's command, but at the hardened tone beneath it. Scarlet and Iko, too, looked up. Stop acting discouraged, all of you. We don't have time for it. You are not discouraged? Winter asked. It's not in my vocabulary. Thorne pushed himself off the door. Iko, did we break into that guardhouse and broadcast Cinder's message across all of Luna? Yes, Captain. And Scarlet, did I rescue you and Wolf when the entire city of Paris was under siege? She raised an eyebrow at him. Actually, I'm pretty sure Cinder- Yes, I did, he pointed at Iko. Did I rescue you and Cinder from that prison cell and fly us all to safety aboard the Rampion? Well, at the time, I wasn't exactly aces, Iko. Just answer the question. Scarlet drummed her fingers. What's your point? My point is that I'm going to figure this out, like I always do. First, we're going to find a way to get into Artemisia. We're going to find Cress and rescue Cinder and Wolf. We're going to overthrow Lavana. And by the stars above, we are going to make Cinder a queen so she can pay us a lot of money from her royal coffers and we can all retire very rich and very alive. Got it? Winter started to clap. Brilliant speech, such gumption and bravado. And yet, strangely lacking in any sort of actual strategy, said Scarlet. Oh, good. I'm glad you noticed that too, said Iko. I was worried my processor might be glitching. She felt for the back of her head. I'm working on that part, Thorn growled. For now, we need to get out of this sector. I'll think better once I'm not worried about more thaumaturges surrounding us. Besides, if we're going by Maglev Tunnel, it's a long walk back to Artemisia. One flaw in this not really a plan, said Scarlet, jutting her thumb toward Winter. We're not taking her back there. That's the opposite of keeping her hidden. Winter untied the towel around her head. There was a spot of blood, but not much. She wondered if her headache would ever ease. You're right. I will go underground, as Scarlet suggested. You're not a mole, said Scarlet, and you can't just go underground. Where will you go? What will you do? 
Are there people down there? Do you need to take supplies? What if Ryu was in my dream too? Winter folded the towel on her knee. He was trying to protect me from the queen. I think he's forgiven me for what happened. Scarlet guffawed, a harsh and delirious sound. Are you even listening? Don't you get it? Cinder and Wolf are gone. Levana has them. She's going to torture them and kill them and... Sobbing, Scarlet lowered her head between her trembling shoulders. No one cares about your stupid dreams and your stupid delusions. They're gone. She wiped her nose with the back of her hand. She was not pretty when she cried, and Winter liked this about her. Tipping forward, she rested her hand on Scarlet's shoulder. Scarlet didn't shake her away. I do understand, she said. It would not be safe for me to return to Artemisia, but that doesn't mean I can't help Celine and my people. I, too, have a not-really-a-plan. Scarlet peered up at her with bloodshot eyes. I'm afraid to ask. Thorn and I go will go to Artemisia and try to save Celine and Wolf and Jason and Cress, while you and I disappear underground, into the lava tubes and the shadows. And there we shall raise an army of our own. Oh, we're going to go underground and raise an army, are we? Scarlet sniffed and threw her hands into the air. Why do I even bother talking to you? You are not helping. You are the capital U of unhelpful. I'm serious. There are killers and there are animals and there are predators yearning to be free. You know this, Scarlet friend. You have already freed one. Winter stood and placed a hand on the wall for balance, then skirted around the small table. Scarlet rolled her eyes, but it was Iko who spoke. The barracks, she said. The barracks where Levana keeps her soldiers are in the lava tubes. Thorne's gaze swiveled from Iko to Winter. Her soldiers? You mean her mutant wolf soldiers? Are you insane? Winter started to giggle. I might as well be, she said, placing a hand on Thorne's cheek. For everyone tells me so. Chapter 44 the queen's on edge, Jason said, as he strapped his gun holster on over his uniform. She's keeping quiet about it, trying to pretend like nothing's happening so the families won't panic. But you can tell something's changed. Cross-legged on the cot, Cress was cradling her port screen against her chest. The temptation grew by the hour to send a calm to Thorne and the others. Her curiosity was killing her, and the separation from them had left her anxious and lonely. But she wouldn't risk the signal being traced. She wouldn't put them in any more danger than they already were, or herself for that matter. Still, being so disconnected was agony. You don't know if the video played? She asked. Jason shrugged and went through a process of checking the gun's ammunition and safety with practiced movements. He tucked it into the holster. I know the queen recorded an impromptu broadcast of her own. I guess she dragged the emperor out for it too. But it didn't broadcast in Artemisia, so I don't know what it said. It could have just been wedding announcement garbage. Cress licked her lips. If I could have access to the security center again, I could find out no. She glared at him and was met with a finger jutting toward her nose. We already risked enough. You're staying here. Turning away, he adjusted his shoulder armor, looking once again like the queen's loyal servant. Long shift tonight. I'm on duty for the entire wedding and celebratory feast but most of us are, 
so it should be quiet around here at least. Cress sighed. There had been a time when the quiet and solitude would have been comforting. That's what she'd been accustomed to aboard the satellite, after all. But now, it made her feel even more like a prisoner. Bye, she muttered before adding half-jokingly. Bring me back some cake. Jason paused with his hand on the door. His face softened. I'll do my best. He pulled open the door and froze. Cress's heart leaped into her throat. Another guard stood in the hall, his hand raised to knock. His attention flitted from Jason to Cress. Recovering faster than Cress, Jason crossed his arms and leaned against the door jamb, blocking the guard's view of her. What do you want? Who's she? The guard asked. That's my business. Oh, please. The guard shoved aside Jason's arm, forcing his way into the small room. Cress pushed her back against the wall, squeezing the port screen so hard she heard the plastic creak in protest. Lots of guards might take mistresses, but not you. The door shut behind him. Cress was watching the stranger when she heard the click of a gun's safety releasing. The guard froze, his back to Jason. His gaze turned surprised as he raised both hands to the side of his head. Who said anything about a mistress? Jason growled. Cress swallowed. This guard was unfamiliar, with dark eyes and wavy hair cut above his ears. She didn't remember him from the ambush at the docks, but she couldn't be sure. Not the welcome I was expecting, said the guard. Jason kept the gun aimed at his back. I don't like people knowing my business. His face was calm. So calm, it terrified Cress almost as much as a stranger's presence. Kinney, isn't it? That's right. I never got to thank you for vouching for me at the trial. Don't mention it. Take his weapons. It was a long moment before Cress realized Jason was talking to her. She gasped and scrambled off the bed. The guard, Kinney, didn't move as she took his gun and knife and backed away again, glad to set the weapons down. I'd rather not kill you, said Jason, but you're going to have to give me a really good reason not to. Kinney's eyebrow twitched. He was looking at Cress again. He seemed curious, but not as afraid as he should have been. I saved your life. Covered that already. How about the sound from the gun will bring every guard running? Most are already on duty. I'll take the risk. Cress thought she detected a smile, but then Kinney turned around to face Jason. Then, how about because I saved Princess Winter's life? Jason's eyes narrowed. There are rumors of rebellion in the outer sectors. I just got back from a raid on RM9, and while searching the house of a known rebel sympathizer, I was pretty shocked to run into none other than the princess herself. I believed her dead just like everyone else, he cocked his head. It must kill you to have everyone thinking you killed her out of some petty jealousy. I admit, I believed it. I've been half tempted to kill you myself for retribution, and I know I'm not the only one. A muscle twitched in Jason's jaw. Sorry I misjudged you. Kinney lowered his arms and hooked his thumbs over his belt. Jason didn't move. I know you care for her more than any of us. When the silence stretched painfully thin between them, Cress asked, So, she's alive? Kinney glanced back at her and nodded. I told her to go into hiding. As far as I know, everyone else still thinks she's dead. Jason sounded like he had sand in his throat when he asked, Did she look all right? 
Kinney's lips curved with amusement. I'd say she looked a lot better than just all right, but then you'd probably shoot me after all. Frowning, Jason lowered his gun, but didn't put it away. So you saw her. That doesn't explain how you saved her life. Jericho was there too. I guess he knew about the queen ordering her to be killed. He wanted to kill her and drag her body back here, so I shot him. Though he tried to sound nonchalant about it, Cress heard his tone waver just a bit. Did you kill him? Jason asked. Yes. They stood in a face-off for a long time before Jason said, I hated that man. Me too. Jason's muscles slowly began to unwind, though his expression was still suspicious. Thanks for telling me. I'm... I've been worried about her. That's not why I'm here. I came to warn you. We saw a royal pod ship out there that shouldn't have been there, and I'm willing to bet it'll be traced back to you. If I figured it out, she will too. The queen might think Winter is dead now, but she's going to find out the truth soon enough. He paused. Who did she threaten to kill if you didn't do it? Jason gulped. No one. Yeah, right. Kinney glanced at his weapons lying beside Cress, but didn't move to pick them up. She ordered my little sister to be killed once, after I released a maid who'd stolen a pair of the queen's earrings. Cress's eyes widened. Jason, however, looked unsurprised. Well, whoever it was, Kinney continued, you're both going to end up dead if you don't stop wasting time and get the hell out of here before Levana finds out you lied to her. He turned to Cress. Can I have my weapons back now? I have about five minutes to report for duty. After a hesitation, Jason nodded and put his own gun away. He was still frowning as Kinney reclaimed his gun and knife. Why are you risking your neck for me? Again. It's what the princess would want. Kinney crossed back to the door, careful not to bump into Jason as he passed him. Her highness persuaded the queen to give my sister the maid's position instead of killing her. So I owe her a lot. He tipped his head toward Cress. Whoever you are. I never saw you. Jason didn't stop him after he slipped out the door. Cress's heart was still hammering. I'm glad you didn't kill him, she whispered. I'm undecided myself. His gaze slid around the room, evaluating what Cress couldn't tell. We'll wait until the wing is mostly cleared, but then it's time to leave. She clutched the port screen, both excited and terrified to be leaving her prison and her sanctuary. Jason, did Lavana threaten to hurt someone if you didn't kill Winter? Of course she did. That's how she operates. Her heart cracked for him, for Winter, for victims she didn't even know. Who? He turned away and started rummaging through a drawer, but she could tell the action was just to occupy himself. No one, he said. No one important. Chapter 45 don't they have any news feeds on this star-forsaken rock? Kai grumbled, sliding his fingers along the base of the holograph, Luna's version of the ever-present net screen. We are in a dictatorship, your majesty, said Torin. His arms folded as he stared out the window toward the sparkling lake below. Do you believe the news feeds would be reliable even if they had them? Ignoring him, Kai swiped his finger again. 
He had sent a message to the queen that morning that the wedding would, unfortunately, have to be postponed if he wasn't allowed to meet with his advisor prior to the ceremony, as his advisor was the one most educated on the vows and customs that would cement the wedding as a recognized political union. Somewhat to his surprise, she assented. It was a relief to see Torn again and assure himself that his advisor hadn't been harmed, but that relief was matched with his growing frustration and restlessness. The Queen's broadcasting networks were his newest cause for complaint. They seemed to contain a whole lot of mindless drivel and nothing useful at all. I want to know what's going on out there, he said flipping off the holograph. I know it started. I know Cinder's done something. Torn shrugged somewhat apologetically. I have no more answers than you do. I know. I don't expect you to. It's just so frustrating to be stuck here when she's... When they're all out there doing whatever it is they're doing. He joined Torn at the window and clawed a hand into his hair. How can the people here stand to be cut off from the rest of the country? Without any media, they have no way of knowing what's happening in the other sectors. Doesn't it drive them crazy? I would think not, said Torin. Look at the splendor they are able to enjoy, thanks to the labor of the outer sectors. Do you think the people here want the illusion of paradise destroyed by witnessing the squalor in the rest of the country? Kai scowled. He'd known that already, and he regretted how naive his question sounded. But he couldn't understand it. He still remembered the day Nancy told him the statistics of poverty and homelessness in the Commonwealth, back when he was ten years old. Nancy had impressed upon him how good the numbers were. How, even though the numbers had crept upward since the spread of letamosis, they still remained lower than they had been in the decades following World War IV. Even still, Kai had gone a week of near-sleepless nights thinking of all those people, his people, who had nowhere to sleep and no food to eat while he was so comfortable and cared for in his palace. He had even written up a proposal about how they could lease out parts of the palace to the citizens with the most need, offering up half of his own private quarters if that would help. But while his father had promised to read the proposal, Kai doubted he'd ever taken it seriously. He could recognize now how childish the proposal had been, but he still couldn't imagine not wanting to do anything to help the citizens of the Commonwealth, just like he couldn't imagine how the members of Lavana's court could lack compassion for the people who had built the paradise they got to enjoy. Your face has healed well, said Torin. I'm sure it will be hardly noticeable in the wedding photos. It took Kai a moment to comprehend him. Oh, right. Reaching up, he felt for his cheek, where Wolf had punched him. It was only sore to the touch now, and without any mirrors to see himself, he'd forgotten all about it. I guess that ruse didn't do me much good, he muttered, shoving his hands into his pockets. It was a valiant effort, nevertheless, said Torin. Speaking of your time away, have you seen the report from the American military that came through this morning? He spun around. Of course not. She took my port screen. Torin grimaced sympathetically. Right, I will leave you with mine. Thank you, Torin. Uh, what report? It appears they've found your friend's ship orbiting in space, abandoned. They're towing it back to the Republic now to begin searching it for evidence to be used against your kidnappers. Once they're found, of course. Kai rubbed the back of his neck. 
They knew it would happen, but still, Thorn won't be happy when he finds out. It was a stolen ship. Regardless of whose side he's on now, the man is a thief and a deserter. I find it difficult to be sympathetic to his loss. Kai couldn't keep down a wry smile. I don't disagree, but when we see Thorn again, maybe I should be the one to break this news to him. He let his gaze travel out to the edge of the lake, where the water met with the encompassing dome. It looked like the end of the world out there. Civilization inside a perfect capsule, all sparkling and pristine. Beyond it, nothing but wasteland. On the horizon, he could see the edge of another dome, and he wondered which it was. He had chosen his words carefully. When they saw Thorn again, not if. Because that's how he had to think about all of his allies, his friends. That's how he had to think about Cinder if he was going to make it through this. He wondered where she was right now, how far she'd gone. Was she safe? A tap at the door startled Kai, but the surprise was suffused with dread. So it begins, he muttered. Enter. It wasn't a wedding stylist, though, but one of his own guards in the doorway, holding a small package wrapped in strips of colored velvet. Pardon the interruption. This was delivered by a servant as a wedding gift from Her Majesty the Queen. We've tested it for chemicals or explosives and have deemed it safe to open. He held the package toward Kai. You mean she doesn't intend to blow me up before the ceremony? Said Kai, taking the box. How disappointing. The guard looked like he wanted to crack a smile, but he resisted. Bowing again, he retreated into the corridor. Kai made quick work of the wrappings, eager to be done with whatever new torment Lavana had devised for him. He was picturing a very tiny ball and chain as he lifted the box's lid. He froze. The blood drained from his head, seeping all the way down to his feet. A cyborg finger was settled onto a bed of white velvet. Grease was smudged into the knuckle joints, and disconnected wires jutted out one side. His stomach twisted. She has cinder, he said, passing the box to Torin. Dazed, he paced back to the windows, his thoughts muddled with denial. This gift answered so many of his questions, and he realized that Torin was right. Sometimes, it was better to be ignorant. It had been ages since Lavana could remember feeling such contentment. Her bothersome niece was once again in captivity and soon would be no more bother at all. Her annoying stepdaughter was dead and she would never again have to listen to her mutterings or cow to her inane wishes. In mere hours, she would be married to the emperor of the Eastern Commonwealth. And in a few short days, she would be given a crown and the title of Empress. It would not be long before all of Earth was hers. Resources, land, a place for her people to enjoy the beauty and luxuries Earthens took for granted. She imagined the history texts centuries from now, telling the story of the lunar queen who had conquered the blue planet and begun a new era an era ruled by those most worthy. She hardly felt the weight of the jewels that were clipped to her gown's sleeves and draped across her collar. 
She hardly noticed the servants as they shuffled around her, adjusting the skirt of her wedding dress, flouncing the crinoline, making final adjustments to the bodice's fit. Without a mirror, Lavana knew she was beautiful. She was the most beautiful queen Luna had ever known, and Kaito was lucky to have such a bride. She was smiling to herself when she finally dismissed the servants. Stunning, my queen. She turned to see Amory at the doorway. What liberties you take to enter without announcing yourself, said Lavana, though there was little venom to her tone. I am preparing for my wedding ceremony. What do you want? I do not wish to be a distraction. I understand this is a momentous occasion for all of us, but I wanted to put your mind at ease regarding tonight's special guest. The cyborg will be brought to the throne room during the feast as requested. Everything is arranged. I am happy to hear it. What a surprise her presence shall be for my new husband. She rubbed her thumb over the base of her ring finger as she spoke, feeling the worn stone band. It was a constant memory of her first husband, Winter's father. He would always be her only love and she had sworn long ago that this ring would never be removed from her finger. Concealing it was as much second nature to her now as the glamour of her red lips and serene voice. There is one other bit of news I must bring to your attention, said Amory, though it remains under investigation, and I do not wish for it to upset you so near your wedding hour. As long as the cyborg is in our custody, Lavana said around a smile, nothing more can upset me. I am glad to hear it, my queen, for we discovered something suspicious on our visit to the mining sector. There was a royal pod ship docked there, and upon further inspection, we found the ship was chartered to none other than Sir Jason Clay. Lavana turned to give Amory her full attention. Go on. We have documentation of this ship leaving Artemisia 47 minutes after the death of Princess Winter. Of course, Sir Clay was still here in the palace at that time, and we do not know who was piloting it. It also seems suspicious that, no matter who was aboard that ship, they would find themselves in the same sector as the cyborg and her companions. Though Amory's expression was neutral, it was easy to discern his suspicions. We have video footage of Winter's death, do we not? We do, my queen. However, as you might recall, we were experiencing technical difficulties that day, with sporadic power outages affecting surveillance throughout the palace. Allow me. He approached the net screen Lavana had long ago commissioned to be put into the stunning frame that had once housed her sister's mirror. Before all mirrors were destroyed. A moment later, Lavana was watching Jason and Winter inside the menagerie. The wolf prowled behind them. Winter kissed the guard with such passion it made Lavana snarl. Then, Jason raised the knife and plunged it into her back. Winter's body slumped, and he lowered her to the ground with all the gentleness of a man in love. Blood began to pool beneath her. The video ended. She raised an eyebrow. She is dead then. Perhaps, but I have concerns that this death might have been staged. You see, this is where the video ends. We have no footage of Jason removing the body or killing the wolf to cover his tracks, as he claims to have done. It does seem a convenient time for this camera in particular, 
to have stopped functioning. Lavana inhaled sharply. I see. Detain Sir Clay in a holding cell for now. I will question him after tonight's feast. I had already taken the liberty of having the guard sent for, your majesty, and I'm afraid he has gone missing. This, more than anything, gave her pause. Missing? He was to report for duty two hours ago, but he has not been seen. Of those guards we have spoken to, no one claims to have seen him since he finished last night's shift. Lavana's gaze unfocused as she glanced out her windows toward her beautiful lake, her beautiful city. Jason had run. Only guilty men run. It had to mean that Winter was alive. Her teeth clenched with loathing, not only for her stepdaughter's continued existence, but at the audacity of a weak-minded guard to play her for a fool. But she forced herself to breathe and let the hatred ebb from her knotted shoulders. No matter, she said. The princess is dead so long as the people believe she is dead. This changes nothing. I have much more important matters to tend to. Of course. Should Jason Clay be found, he is to be killed on sight. Any word of the princess, and I wish to be informed immediately. Amory bowed. Yes, my queen. I will leave you to your preparations. Congratulations on your coming happiness. Lavana's smile was not forced. Her coming happiness. She liked the sound of that very much. Amory turned to go. Lavana gasped. Wait, one more thing. Amory paused. Jason Clay's parents are to be executed for treason, publicly, as a reminder that such betrayals will not be tolerated. Have the guards in their sector do it now so their deaths won't taint tonight's wedding broadcast. She smoothed the front of her bodice. Jason will know that the fault of their deaths lies with him. Chapter 46 Kai wasn't sure how he'd ended up dressed like a groom again. He said nothing as the stylists fidgeted with his hair and clothes. He couldn't have picked any of them out of a lineup once they'd gone. Cinder was dead. That, or Lavana was keeping her somewhere. He didn't know which would be worse. Cinder. Her name whispered over and over in his thoughts, each time a fresh thorn in his flesh. Brave, determined Cinder. Smart, resourceful, sarcastic Cinder. He refused to believe that she was dead. What did a finger indicate, really? He trudged through every faint possibility. It was a fake finger Lavana had crafted to torment him. Or Cinder had lost it in a battle, but the rest of her had gotten away. Or surely there must be some other explanation. She couldn't be dead. Not Cinder. His brain was muddled, like the afternoon had been spent in a hazy dream. A hazy nightmare. Whether or not the finger meant what he feared it meant, he would soon be married to Lavana. After everything, all their planning, all their hopes, it was all ending this way, just as Lavana had intended from the start. What am I doing? He asked when Torin returned from changing into his own dress clothes. Unless it was a thaumaturge using a glamour to impersonate Torin, he slammed shut his eyes. He hated it here. Torin sighed and came to stand beside him. 
earth was hanging above them, almost full amid the star-filled sky. You are stopping a war, said his advisor, and obtaining an antidote. Kai had used those same arguments so many times, they'd begun to lose their meaning. It wasn't supposed to go this way. I'd thought, I'd really thought she stood a chance. A hand landed on his shoulder, comforting as it could be. You have not married her yet, your majesty. You can still say no. A wry laugh escaped him. With us all trapped here, she would slaughter us. Coming here had been a mistake. In the end, his good intentions didn't matter. He had failed. A thaumaturge entered, and though he was flanked by two of Kai's personal guards, everyone in the room knew the guards were merely ornamentation. I am to escort you to the grand ballroom, said the thaumaturge. The ceremony is about to begin. Kai wiped his hands down the front of his silk shirt. Rather than damp and clammy, they were dry, bone dry and freezing cold. All right, he said, I'm ready. Torn stayed at his side as long as he could, following their entourage through the palace's vast corridors until he was forced to go join the rest of the Commonwealth representatives and guests. It happened in a blur, and though Kai felt as if he were walking with iron shoes on his feet, they reached the ballroom too quickly. He sucked in a breath, his disbelief interrupted by a jolt of panic. When they had gone over the rehearsal the day before, it had felt like a joke, like he was playing a game. And for once, he had the winning hand. But now, as the thaumaturge gestured for him to take his place at the altar set up at the front of the grand ballroom, and he caught sight of the hundreds of exotically dressed lunars seated before him, it all came crumbling down. This wasn't a game at all. Prime Minister Cayman stood on the dais behind an ornate gold and black altar that was crowned with hundreds of small glowing orbs. She caught Kai's eye as he made his way onto the platform. Her expression was sympathetic. Kai wondered if she realized that Lavana intended to conquer her country too, once her grasp was firm around the Commonwealth. Lavana planned to conquer them all. Inhale. Exhale. He turned away without returning Cayman's almost smile. The crowd was larger than he'd imagined. Easily a thousand people gathered in their evening finest. The contrast between the earthen's muted colors and the lunar's sparkles and fluorescence was laughable. An aisle stretched down the middle of the ballroom, defined by candelabras topped with more pale orbs, their lights flickering like little flames. The aisle runner was black and set with rhinestones in mimicry of the night sky, or the always sky, as it was here on Luna. A hush fell over the room, and Kai could tell it was not a normal hush. It was too controlled, too flawless. His heart pounded, uncontrolled in its cage. This was the moment he'd been dreading, the fate he'd fought against for so long. No one was going to interfere. He was alone and rooted to the floor. At the far back of the room, the massive doors opened, chorused with a fanfare of horns. At the end of the aisle, two shadows emerged, 
a man and a woman in militaristic uniforms carrying the flags of Luna and the Eastern Commonwealth. After they parted, setting the flags into stands on either side of the altar, a series of lunar guards marched into the room, fully armed and synchronized. They, too, spread out when they reached the altar, like a protective wall around the dais. Next down the aisle were six thaumaturges, dressed in black, walking in pairs, graceful as black swans. They were followed by two in red, and finally, head thaumaturge Amory Park, all in white. A voice dropped down from some hidden speakers. All rise for Her Royal Majesty Queen Lavanna Blackburn of Luna. The people rose. Kai clasped his shaking hands behind his back. She appeared as a silhouette first in the lights of the doors, a perfect hourglass dropping off to a full billowing skirt that flowed behind her. She walked with her head high, gliding toward the altar. The dress was scarlet red, rich as blood, with dainty gold chains draped around her shoulders. It reminded Kai of a blood-red poppy, the petals full and drooping. A sheer gold veil covered her face and billowed like a sail as she walked. When she was close enough, Kai could make out hints of her face through the veil. Her lips had been painted to match the dress, and her eyes burned with victory. She strode onto the dais and paused at Kai's side. The skirt's hem pooled at her feet. You may be seated, said the disembodied voice. The crowd shuffled into their seats. Prime Minister Cayman lifted her port screen from the altar. Ladies and gentlemen, lunas and earthens, she began, a hidden microphone carrying her voice over the crowd. We gather today to witness a historical union of Earth and Luna, an alliance formed by trust and mutual respect. This is a significant moment in our history that will forever symbolize the enduring relationship of the people of Luna and the people of Earth. She paused to let her words sink into the crowd. Kai wanted to gag. The Prime Minister focused on the bride and groom. We are here to witness the marriage of Emperor Kaito of the Eastern Commonwealth and Queen Lavana Blackburn of Luna. Kai met Lavana's gaze through the veil. Her taunting smile chased all his denial away. Cinder was captured, or dead. The wedding would go on as planned. The coronation would take place in two days' time. It was just him now, the last line of defense between Lavana and Earth. So be it. He set his jaw and returned his focus to their officiant. He gave a small nod. The wedding began. Chapter 47 The groom will now take his ribbon and tie it three times around his bride's left wrist, symbolizing the love, honor, and respect that will forever bind their matrimony said Prime Minister Cayman, unwinding a length of velvet ribbon from a spool. She picked up the polished silver scissors from the tray and snipped off the length of ribbon. 
Kai tried not to make a face as Cayman laid the ribbon across his palms. It was shimmering and ivory, the color of the full moon, as opposed to the silky blue ribbon already wrapped around his wrist, the color of earth. It felt like his consciousness was hovering above him, watching as his fingers wrapped the ribbon around Lavana's bone-thin wrist. Once, twice, three times, finishing it off with a simple knot. There was no grace to it, and the ribbon was probably too loose, a side effect of his unwillingness to brush her skin with his fingertips. When she had tied his, she had practically given him a wrist massage that made him squirm on the inside. I will now knot the two ribbons together, said Prime Minister Cayman in her measured, serene voice. She had not faltered once during the ceremony. This is to symbolize the unity of the bride and groom, and also of Luna and the Eastern Commonwealth, which represents the planet of Earth on this, the eighth day of November, in the 126th year of the Third Era. She took the ends of each ribbon between her fingers. Kai watched with detached interest as her dark, slender fingers knotted the two ribbons together. She yanked on the ends, tightening the knot. Kai stared at it, feeling the disconnect in his mind. He was not here. This was not happening. His hateful gaze betrayed him, flickering toward Lavana's face. It was the briefest of looks, but she somehow managed to catch it. She smiled, and icicles stabbed at his spine. This was happening. This was his bride. Lavana's lips twitched behind her veil. He could hear her voice, though she didn't open her lips, accusing him of an endearing, bashful crush, chastising his youth and innocence at such a moment. He couldn't tell if the voice was his own taunting imagination or something she was injecting into his thoughts, and he would never know. He was marrying a woman who would forever hold this power over him. How different she was from Cinder. Celine, her niece, though it didn't seem possible the two had anything in common, especially their ancestry. Thinking of Cinder brought back the painful memory of the cyborg finger on a bed of silk, and Kai shuddered. The officiant paused, but Kai was already reconfiguring his expression. He let out a steady breath and gave her a subtle nod to continue. Cayman reached for her port screen, and Kai grasped at the momentary pause, trying to compose himself. He thought of the mutants murdering innocent civilians. He thought of his father dying in the palace quarantine while an antidote existed in Lavana's control. He thought of all of the lives he would be saving by stopping this war and obtaining the cure. We will now commence with the exchanging of vows, all set forth by the Council of Leaders of the Earthen Union, beginning with the groom. Please, repeat after me. Cayman glanced up to make sure Kai was paying attention. I, Emperor Kaito of the Eastern Commonwealth of Earth, he repeated as accommodating as an android. Take as my wife and the future empress of the Eastern Commonwealth, Her Royal Majesty, Queen Lavana Blackburn of Luna. He was out of his body again, looking down, listening to the words but not understanding them. They held no meaning. 
to rule at my side with grace and justice, to honor the laws of the earthen union as laid out by our forefathers, to be an advocate for peace and fairness among all peoples. Did anyone believe a word of this rubbish? From this day forward, she will be my sun at dawn and my moon at night, and I vow to love and cherish her for all our days. Who wrote these vows, anyway? He'd never heard anything so ridiculous in his life. But he said them, with no emotion and even less interest. Prime Minister came and gave him a nod, akin to a well-done, and turned to Lavana. Now, the bride will repeat after me. Kai tuned out Lavana's voice, examining their bound wrists instead. Was the ribbon around his wrist growing tighter? His fingers were beginning to tingle with numbness. He was losing circulation, but the ribbon curled innocently against his skin. Stars above, it was warm in here. And I vow to love and cherish him for all our days. Kai snorted, loudly. He'd meant for it to be kept inside, but it just slipped out. Lavana tensed, and the officiant speared him with a sharp look. Kai coughed in an attempt to smooth over the moment. Sorry, there was something in my... He coughed again. Terse wrinkles formed around Cayman's mouth as she turned back to the queen. Your royal majesty, do you hereby accept the terms of marriage set forth before you on this day as both the rules of matrimony between two beings and also as the bond that will henceforth be forged between Luna and the Eastern Commonwealth, resulting in the political alliance of these two entities? If you accept, say, I do. I do. Lavana's voice was clear and sweet and sent a thousand piercing needles into Kai's chest. His head was throbbing from exhaustion, from disbelief, from misery. Your Imperial Majesty, do you hereby accept the terms of marriage set forth between you on this day as both the rules of matrimony between two beings and also as the bond that will henceforth be forged between the Eastern Commonwealth and Luna, resulting in the political alliance of these two entities? If you accept, say, I do. He blinked at Prime Minister Cayman. His heart was pulsating against his ribs, and her words were hollow echoes in his hollow head. And he had only to open his mouth and say, I do, and the wedding would be over, and Lavana would be his wife. But his lips would not open. I don't. The muscles flexed in the prime minister's jaw. Her gaze hardened, prompting, I can't. He felt the hush of a thousand guests bearing down on him. He imagined Torin and President Vargas and Queen Camilla and all the others watching, waiting. He pictured all of Lavana's guards and thaumaturges and that smug Amory Park and a thousand vain, ignorant aristocrats hanging on his silence. He knew Lavana could force him to say the words, but she didn't. Though he imagined a blast of icy air rolling off her with each passing second, she waited with all the others. Kai pried open his lips, but his tongue was heavy as iron. 
the officiant inhaled a patient breath and cast a worried glance to the queen before fixating on Kai again. Her expression grew nervous. Kai looked down at the scissors she'd used to cut the ribbons. He moved fast before he could question himself. His unbound hand shot forward, snatching the scissors off the altar. Blood rushed in his ears as he spun toward Lavana, arm raised and plunged the scissors toward her heart. Cinder cried out, her arms flying up in defense. The point of the scissors sliced through the fabric of her elbow-length gloves before coming to a swift halt, pressed into the silver bodice of her ball gown. Kai's arms trembled with the effort to push through the control, but his hand was now carved from stone. Breath ragged, he looked up into Cinder's face. She looked like she had at the ball, in her tattered dress and stained gloves, her damp hair tumbling around her face. The only difference was the blue ribbon tying them together, and now a single slit cut into the silk of her gloves. Slowly, like molasses, blood began to seep through that cut, staining the fabric. Cinder, no, Lavana, saw the blooming cut and snarled. Her hold on Kai snapped, and he stumbled back, the scissors clattering to the floor, ringing with a tone of finality. You dare to threaten me here? Lavana hissed, and though she tried to mimic Cinder's voice, Kai could tell the difference. In front of both our kingdoms? Kai's attention was still on the blood leaking from her wounded arm. He had done it. For a moment, he had gotten through the glamour, through the manipulation. It wasn't much, but he had actually hurt her. It wasn't meant to be a threat, he said. Her eyes narrowed. We both know you intend to kill me the moment I am no longer useful to you. I thought it was fair to let you know the feeling is mutual. Lavana glared, and it was unnerving to see such hatred on Cinder's face. Vibrating with adrenaline, Kai looked back at the audience. Most of their guests were on their feet, their expressions a mix of shock and confusion. Near the front, Torn looked like he was ready to hurdle himself over two rows of seats to be at Kai's side the instant he was needed. Kai held his gaze long enough, he hoped, to convey that he was all right. He had hurt her, Kai wanted to say. It was possible to hurt her, which meant it was possible to kill her. Setting his jaw, Kai turned back to face Prime Minister Cayman. She, too, was shaking, both hands gripping her port screen. I do, he said, listening to his own proclamation echo around the altar. The officiant's gaze darted between him and his bride, like she wasn't sure if she should proceed or not. But then Lavana straightened her wedding gown, or Cinder's ball gown, as it was. Whatever reaction she was hoping to get from him by maintaining the glamour, he wouldn't, couldn't give it to her. When the silence had hovered for too long, Lavana growled. Get on with it. Cayman gulped. By the power given to me by the people of Earth, I do now pronounce you husband and wife. Kai didn't even flinch. We ask that all video feeds be discontinued so the groom might kiss his bride. Kai waited to be hit by a wall of dread, but even that was replaced with fervent determination. He imagined all the holographs on Luna fading away and all the earthen news feeds flickering to dead air. He imagined all his people watching and the horror they must be feeling as those feeds were silenced. He turned to Lavana, his bride, 
his wife. She was still impersonating Cinder, but the ball gown was replaced by the vibrant red wedding dress and sheer veil. She smiled deviously. Ignoring her, he mechanically took her veil between his fingers and pulled it over her head. I thought you might prefer this look, she said. Consider it a wedding gift. Kai couldn't bring himself to react, no matter how much he wanted to reflect that haughtiness back to her. In fact, I do. He craned his head toward her. Selene is more beautiful than you could ever be. He kissed her, an abrupt, passionless kiss that felt nothing at all like kissing Cinder. A collective breath released from the audience. Kai pulled away, putting a full body of open air between them. The audience started to applaud, politely at first, then growing more enthusiastic, as if they were afraid their clapping might not be polite enough. Kai held out his elbow for Lavana to take, their hands still bound, and together they turned to face the audience. From the corner of his eye, he saw Cinder's image melt away, her face replaced with Lavana's, and he was glad she looked annoyed. It was the tiniest of victories, but he was glad for it. They stood amid the thundering cheers, each of them seething, husband and wife. Chapter 48 Cress had long ago lost track of where they were or what direction they were going. Jason had dragged her through some complicated labyrinth of halls beneath the palace, downstairs and through maglev tunnels. Though it felt like they'd been walking for hours, she couldn't even be sure they'd left the boundaries of Artemisia Central, given how circuitous their route had been. They were sneaking through a tunnel, staying close to the edges to avoid any shuttles, which had a tendency to sneak up too fast on their silent magnets. When the power cut out, plunging them into darkness, Cress gasped and reached for Jason, but froze with her fingers inches away from him where she expected him to be. Clenching her fist, she drew her hand back to her side. Brave. She was brave. In the distance, they heard the scream of a shuttle hitting the rails and careening to a stop. A moment later, orange emergency lights illuminated the tracks at their feet, and a voice echoed from invisible speakers. This shuttle route has been discontinued until further notice. Please proceed to the next platform on foot and prepare for a security inspection. The Crown apologizes for any inconvenience. She glanced up at Jason. What does that mean? My guess? That whatever Cinder's doing, it's working. He started walking again, picking their way more carefully with the reducing light. They must be limiting transportation into the city. Her nerves hummed. Will we be able to get out? We're almost to the station that receives 80% of our supply trains. They should still be operational, given how many guests Lavana has to feed this week. Cress trotted in his wake, hoping he was right. He hadn't been very forthcoming with his plan, and she still had no idea where they were going. She wondered if he was right. Had Winter and Scarlet gotten her message to the others? Had they been able to broadcast the video? She had no answers. If Lavana was aware of a potential uprising, she was keeping the knowledge to herself. The tunnel became wider, the rails merging with two other tracks, and Cress was hit with a pungent smell that reminded her of the caravan she and Thorn had crossed the Sahara with. Dirt and animals.
Around the next bend in the tunnel, she could see a bright glow and hear the echoes of grating machinery and rumbling wheels. Jason slowed his pace. A massive platform came into view. A holographic sign was showing coverage of the royal wedding. On the tracks, a dozen maglev tracks stretched in multiple directions, loaded with cargo trains. Most of their cars were hidden from view in the darkened tunnels, waiting to be relieved of their goods. Cranes and pulleys filled the dock, and Cress imagined it would have taken countless laborers to man all the machinery. But the only personnel was a contingent of uniformed guards sweeping the cars ahead. Jason pulled Cress into the shadows of the nearest train. A second later, a silhouette passed up ahead, and the beam of a flashlight jotted in their direction. Jason and Cress ducked between the nearest cars, watching as the light beam flickered along the ground and disappeared. A-6 is clear, someone yelled, followed by another. A-7, clear. There was a pause. Then, the hum of magnets. The train swayed forward. Jason jumped onto the axle to keep from being caught on the tracks, hauling Cress up beside him. This time, she did grab his arm as the train surged forward, then came to another stop. Car doors thudded open. Jason jumped down from the axle, dragging Cress with him. Inspections, he whispered, making sure no one tries to sneak into the city. What about sneaking out of the city? He pointed toward the front of the train. We need to get into one of the cars that was already searched. This train should be heading back to the agriculture sectors from here. They sneaked over the axle to the opposite side of the car. Though there were platforms on both sides of the tracks, the second platform had only a single guard pacing the perimeter with an assault rifle at the ready. All right, Shortcake, when that guard has his back to us again, we're going to sneak forward as fast as we can. Once he starts to turn, crawl under the train and hold still. Cress glared at the back of his head. Don't call me Shortcake. Up ahead, someone yelled, A-8, clear. B-1, clear. The guard turned away. Jason and Cress darted forward. Her heart was thumping as she kept one eye on the guard's back and his threatening gun the other on the tracks beneath her feet. The guard started to pivot. Cress dropped to her hands and knees and scurried under the train car. Sweat matted her hair to the back of her neck. Over here! A yell was cut off, followed by two loud thuds and the clang of metal on metal. The guard with the rifle turned and charged toward the tracks, vaulting over an axle. A gunshot. A grunt. Freeze! Another gunshot. With the platform unexpectedly clear, Jason shimmied out from beneath the train and waved for Cress to follow. Her elbows scraped against the hard ground as she pulled herself out. Jason dragged her to her feet, and they took off running toward the front of the train. The sounds of a struggle continued on the opposite platform. They reached car A7 and plastered themselves to the side to catch their breath. Now, they only had to sneak around to the other side and climb into the car without being seen. Or shot, she thought as another gunshot made her jump. Cress looked back, and her heart leaped into her throat. A girl was on the ground, crawling beneath one of the train cars, just like Cress had been seconds before. Though Cress could see very little of her, she couldn't mistake the abundance of silky braids dyed in varying shades of blue. Iko! Iko's head snapped up. Her eyes widened. The look was brief, though, as she turned her head towards something on the other side of the train. 
She started to scuffle forward, her belly pressed against the ground. Jason cursed, then launched himself past Cress. His own gun was already in his palm as he ran into the fray. Cress followed, though with more hesitation, having no weapon of her own. She crouched down against the train car and inched her head forward. Her throat dried. Thorn. He was wearing the uniform of a lunar guard, but there was no mistaking him. She clapped both hands over her mouth to keep from shouting his name. He was grappling with a guard from the platform. The rifle was nowhere to be seen. Four other guards and two flashlights, their beams spotlighting random spots on the tracks, were scattered across the platform. Cress noticed a spray of blood against one of the cars at the same moment Iko charged out from beneath the car and threw herself at a sixth guard, who was trying to get a good shot at Thorn. It was an awkward tackle, though. Something seemed to be wrong with Iko's right arm. The guard grabbed Iko and pinned her to the ground, wrapping his hands around her throat, oblivious that oxygen intake wasn't an issue. Spotting an abandoned handgun a few steps away, Cress leaped for it, but the moment she picked it up and aimed it into the fight, her arms began to tremble. She had never fired a gun before. She was attempting to still her hand enough to take aim when two successive gunshots echoed through her skull. The first knocked the guard off Iko. The second took out the guard wrestling with Thorn. The world seemed still, but for heavy breathing. The uncanny silence made her panting unbearably loud. Upon confirmation that both guards were dead or incapacitated, Jason dropped his gun back into its holster. Thorn blinked at Jason, shocked, as he stood and straightened his shirt. He looked about to say something when Iko screamed, Cress! and shot forward, wrapping Cress in a one-armed embrace. Cress stumbled, letting herself be held, even while her gaze sought out Thorn. His jaw hung as he stared at her. He was disheveled and bruised and breathless. He stumbled forward and engulfed both Cress and Iko into an enormous hug. Cress squeezed her eyes shut as hot tears began to cloud them. His arm around her shoulders, his bristled chin on her forehead, one of Iko's braids in her mouth. She had never been so happy. Jason grunted, we need to go. Iko stepped back but Thorn filled the space she'd left, cupping Cress's face in his hands. His eyes bored into her, full of disbelief. His thumb caught her first tear. Suddenly, Cress found herself laughing and sniffling and laughing some more. She ducked her head and swiped at the tears. No crying, she said. It's dehydrating. His arms wound around her again. She felt the rumble of his voice as he said, It is you. Thank the stars. When I say we should go, said Jason, I mean now. Thorne's arms tensed, and with one tight squeeze, he let her go and turned to face Jason. A muscle twitched in his cheek. It was the only warning before Thorne's fist collided with Jason's jaw. Cress gasped. Jason stumbled back, his hand coming up to feel the wound. That's for selling us out on Earth, said Thorne. And this is for taking care of Cress. He pulled Jason into a hug, burying his face in Jason's shoulder. Jason rolled his eyes to the cavernous ceiling. Don't make me regret that decision. He shoved Thorn away. Your eyesight's back. Good. Let's search these men for weapons and get out of here. With a nod, Thorn leaned over one of the bodies and unstrapped the knife from the guard's belt. To Cress's surprise, he handed it to Jason, 
who hesitated only briefly before tucking it through his belt. How did you know how to find us? Thorn asked. We didn't. We were on our way out of here, Jason frowned. Where's Winter? She and Scarlet went into hiding, said Iko. She was poking at her limp right arm, then tugging at her deadened fingers. Well, sort of. It's complicated. Thorn peered at the android. What happened? Her lips bunched. One of those guards stabbed me in the shoulder. I think it severed something important. She turned to show them a jagged cut in her upper back and sighed. It's like this is pick on Ico day or something. Cress pressed her lips in sympathy, but the reminder of Ico's cybernetic parts made her realize, where's Cinder? Thorne's face became shadowed, but before he could respond, a chime blared through the tunnel. Cress jumped. The holographic screen on the wall brightened with Thaumaturge Amory's face. People of Luna, I am pleased to make the announcement that the wedding ceremony is complete. Our honored ruler, Queen Levana, has sealed the marriage alliance with Emperor Kaito of Earth. Aiko grunted in a most unladylike way, drawing everyone's gaze to her. I get stabbed and she gets to marry Kai? That just figures. The coronation ceremony, Amory continued, in which we will welcome Emperor Kaito as our honored king consort, and Her Majesty Queen Levana will be bestowed with the title of Empress of Earth's Eastern Commonwealth, will take place two days hence at sunrise. Amory's eyes took on an arrogant glint. Our illustrious queen asks that the people of Luna partake in tonight's celebration. Tonight's wedding feast shall be broadcast across all sectors, during which we will have a special trial planned for the festivities. This broadcast will be mandatory viewing for all citizens and shall commence in 20 minutes from the end of this announcement. The video cut off. Special trial? said Cress. It's Cinder, said Thorn, glowering at the holograph. She has Cinder, and Wolf, too. We expect her to have them publicly executed as a way of quelling the insurrection. A chill swept down Cress's spine. Twenty minutes. It would take longer than that to get back to the palace. We're going to rescue her, said Iko, as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Sorry, said Jason, looking like he actually meant it. But if we only have 20 minutes, we're already too late. Chapter 49 Cinder jabbed her finger's screwdriver into the wall beside the cell door. A thumbnail's worth of dust and rock chipped away, joining the pile at her feet. The lava rock was hard, but her titanium tools were harder and her resolve was the hardest it had ever been. She was angry. She was frustrated. She was afraid. She was distraught over Maha's death, which kept replaying in her memory, making her want to jab the screwdriver into her own temple to make it stop. She had looked at the raid on RM9 from every angle, torturing herself with what-ifs and implausible scenarios, trying to find some way to bring Maha back to life, to free herself and Wolf, to protect her friends, to defeat Levana. 
she was aware of how futile it was. Maybe Amory was right. Maybe she should have controlled everyone in that sector from the start. It would have made her a tyrant, but it also would have kept them alive. She was nauseated from the rank smell coming from the bucket against the wall. She was annoyed that Lavana's goons had taken her best weapon, her cybernetic pointer finger with the gun attachment, and locked her up with her stepmother and stepsister, who had barely spoken since she'd arrived. Rationally, she knew there was no way she could dig through the door's hinges before the guards came for her. She knew she was working herself into a frenzy for no logical reason. But she couldn't bring herself to slump to the ground, defeated, like they were. Another rock chip crumbled down the wall. Cinder blew a lock of hair out of her face, but it fell right back down. According to the clock in her head, she had been in this cell for over 24 hours. She had not slept. The wedding, she knew, would be over by now. The thought tied her stomach into knots. It occurred to her that if she had let Lavana come and take her from New Beijing, this is where she would have ended up anyway. She still would have been executed. She was still going to die. She'd tried to run. She'd tried to fight. And all she got for it was a spaceship full of friends who she'd now be taking down with her. Why did he call you princess? Cinder paused, glaring at the pathetic scratch marks she'd made. It was Pearl who had spoken, her voice fragile as she broke their silence for the first time in hours. Pushing the miscreant hair back with her sweat-dampened wrist, Cinder glanced at Pearl and Audrey, not bothering to hide her disdain. She had already hardened herself to any sort of sympathy for them. Every time a twinge struck her, she called up the memory of Audrey demanding that Cinder hobble around footless for an entire week as a reminder that she wasn't human. Or the time Pearl had thrown Cinder's toolbox into a crowded street, ruining the silk gloves Kai had given her. She kept reminding herself that whatever was going to happen to them, they deserved it. It didn't make her feel any better. In fact, thinking about it was making her feel cruel and petty and also giving her a headache. She shook it off. I'm Princess Celine, she answered, turning back to her work. Pearl laughed, a short hysterical sound full of disbelief. Audrey stayed silent. The cell filled with Cinder's persistent scrape, scrape, clatter, scrape, scrape, clatter. Her pile grew larger, pebble by hard-earned pebble. She was never getting out of here. Garen knew. Audrey's voice was brittle. Cinder froze again. Garen had been Audrey's husband, the man who had made the decision to adopt Cinder. She'd barely known him. She was annoyed when her own curiosity forced her to turn around. Switching the screwdriver for her flashlight, she beamed it toward her stepmother. Excuse me? Audrey flinched, both arms wrapped around her daughter. They hadn't moved from their corner. Garen knew, she said again. He never told me, but when he was taken away to the quarantines, he told me to take care of you. He said it as if it were the most important thing in the world. She fell quiet, like the presence of her dead husband was there, hanging over them all. Wow, said Cinder. 
You really excelled at that dying request, didn't you? Audrey's gaze narrowed, full of a disgust Cinder was all too familiar with. I will not tolerate you speaking to me this way, when my husband, you won't tolerate it, Cinder yelled. Should I tell you all the things I'm no longer going to tolerate? Because it's a long list. Audrey shrank back. Cinder had wondered if Audrey might be afraid of her, now that she was lunar and a wanted felon. Her reaction confirmed it. Why wouldn't Dad say something, said Pearl. Why wouldn't he tell us? Maybe he knew you'd sell me for ransom the first chance you got? Pearl ignored her. And if you really are a princess, why are you in here? Cinder glared at her, waited, watched as understanding dawned on Pearl's face. She wants to kill you so she can stay the queen. Give the girl a treat, Cinder said. But what does that have to do with us? Tears began to pool in Pearl's eyes. Why are we being punished? We didn't do anything. We didn't know. Cinder's adrenaline and anger were slipping, exhaustion crawling into the spaces they'd left behind. You gave me your invitations to the royal wedding, which allowed me to kidnap Kai, which drove Lavana crazy. Thanks for that, by the way. How can you think only of yourself at a time like this? Audrey snapped. How can you be so selfish? Cinder's hands curled into fists. If I don't take care of myself, nobody will. That's something I learned early on, thanks to you. Audrey pulled her daughter closer and smoothed down her hair. Pearl slumped against her without a fight. Cinder wondered if she was in shock. Maybe they both were. She turned back to the wall and carved a C into the stone. These walls were scored with hundreds of words, names, pleas, promises, threats. She considered adding a plus K, but the idea of such whimsy made her want to beat her head against the iron door. You're a monster, Audrey whispered. Cinder smirked without humor. Fine, I'm a monster. You couldn't even save Peony. At the mention of her younger stepsister, a new bout of rage surged like a thousand sparking wires in Cinder's head. She spun back. You think I didn't try? You had an antidote! Audrey was screaming now, too, her eyes wild, though she stayed hunkered over Pearl. I know you gave it to that little boy. It saved his life, Chang Sunto. She spat the name like poison. You chose to save him over Peony. How could you? Did you taunt her with it? Did you give her false hope before you watched her die? Cinder gaped at her stepmother, her own anger eclipsed with a surprising jolt of pity. This woman was full of so much ignorance, it was almost like she wanted to stay that way. She saw what she wanted, believed anything to support her limited view of the world. Cinder could still remember how she had felt running to the plague quarantines, how she desperately clutched the vial of antidote, how she'd been so hopeful she could save Peony's life and so devastated when she failed. She'd been too late. She still hadn't quite forgiven herself. Audrey would never know, would never understand. To her, Cinder was just a machine, incapable of anything but cruelty. Five years she had lived with this woman, and never once had she seen Cinder as she was. 
as Kai saw her, and Thorn and Iko and all the people who trusted her, all the people who knew her. She shook her head, finding it easier than she'd expected to dismiss her stepmother's words. I'm done trying to explain myself to you. I'm done seeking your approval. I'm done with you. Kicking at the pile of rock shavings, she jabbed the screwdriver into the wall at the same moment she heard footsteps. Her jaw tightened. Her time was up. Turning, she reached Audrey and Pearl in three long strides. They both shriveled away. Cinder grabbed the front of Audrey's shirt and pulled her upward. If you even think about telling them my foot can be as easily removed as that finger, I will force you to gouge out your own eyes with your fingernails if it is the last thing I do. Do you understand me? Audrey paled and gave a trembling nod before a man's voice sounded beyond the door. Open it. Dropping her stepmother back into the ground, Cinder spun back. The door opened and the cell filled with the corridor's light. A single guard... Thaumaturge Amory, plus four additional thaumaturges dressed in a mix of red and black. Five of them. How flattering. Her Majesty has requested the pleasure of your company, said Amory. Cinder lifted her chin. I can't promise my company will be as pleasant as she expects. She strode toward them to show she wasn't afraid, but suddenly felt herself being thrown against the wall. The pain jolted down her spine, knocking the air from her lungs. It reminded her of all the sparring matches she'd had with Wolf aboard the Rampion, except a hundred times worse, because Wolf always looked guilty afterward. The guard who had thrown her wrapped his hand around Cinder's throat. Cinder scowled at him, even though she knew he was being controlled, and her true attacker was one of the thaumaturges. The guard glared back. That was your first warning, said Amory. If you try to run, if you try to fight, if we sense you trying to use your gift, we will not bother with a second one. The guard released her, and Cinder slumped, bracing herself with locked knees. She rubbed her neck briefly before her wrists were yanked behind her back and bound. The guard shoved her toward the door. There were four more guards in the hallway, weapons drawn. Unfortunately, they were already under the control of the thaumaturges. She had no hope for turning any of them to her side. Yet. But if anyone slipped for a moment, she wasn't going to bother with a first warning. Bring the earthens, too, Amory said. Audrey and Pearl whimpered as they were hauled to their feet, but Cinder turned down her audio interface to drown them out. She didn't know why Lavana wanted her stepmother and stepsister, but if she thought Cinder held some affection for them, she would be disappointed. Where are we going? Cinder asked as she was shoved away from the cell. There was a long silence, and she was sure she was being ignored, but eventually Amory answered. You are to be the guest of honor at Her Majesty's wedding feast. She clenched her jaw. Wedding feast? but I forgot my ball gown on earth. This time, it was one of the females who snickered. Don't worry, she said. You wouldn't want to get blood all over it anyway. Chapter 50 Cinder found herself before a pair of ominous ebony black doors. 
They stood twice her height and in a place made almost entirely of glass and white stone. Standing before them felt like standing at the edge of a black hole. They were minimally accented with two thick black iron handles that arched halfway to the floor. The lunar insignia had been carved into the wood in pristine detail, depicting the city capital of Artemisia and, in the distance, Earth. Two guards pulled open the doors, and Cinder was facing a gauntlet of yet more thaumaturges and guards, and now wolf mutant soldiers as well. The sight of them made Cinder shudder. These were not special operatives like Wolf. These men had been transformed into something beastly and grotesque. The bones of their jaws were misshapen and reinforced to fit enormous canine teeth. Their arms hung awkwardly at their sides, as if their spines were unaccustomed to the weight of their new muscles and extended limbs. It occurred to her that they weren't unlike cyborgs. They were both made to be better than what they'd been born as. They were both unnatural. Only instead of being pieced together with wires and steel, these creatures were a jigsaw of muscle tissue and cartilage. The guard yanked on Cinder's elbow, and she stumbled forward. The soldiers watched her with keen, hungry eyes. Wolf had told her that these soldiers would be different, erratic and feral, craving nothing but violence and blood. A powerful lunar, like the queen, could trick them into perceiving a glamour, but that was it. Even the thaumaturges couldn't control their minds or bodies, but instead had to train the soldiers like dogs. Misbehave, and they were punished with pain. Do well, and they were rewarded. Only, the rewards Wolf had talked about didn't strike Cinder as all that appetizing. Evidently on Earth, each bloody kill made for its own reward. They were eager to go to war. Cinder opened her mind to them, trying to sense their bioelectric pulses. Their energy burned white-hot and violent. Hunger and temptation writhed beneath their skin. She was dizzy with the mere thought of trying to control this much raw energy. But she had to try. Taking in a measured breath, Cinder reached for the mind of the last soldier. His energy was scalding and ravenous. She imagined it cooling calming. She imagined the soldier looking at her and seeing not an enemy, but a girl who needed rescuing, a girl who deserved his loyalty. She caught the soldier's eye, and his mouth curled into a sickening grin around his jagged teeth. Disheartened, Cinder pulled her attention away. Nearing the end of the gauntlet, she tried to take in the rest of her surroundings. Lively chatter and laughter and the chaotic clinking of glasses. The aroma of food struck her like a cloud of steam released from a covered pot. Her mouth filled with saliva, onions and garlic and braised meat and something peppery that stung her eyes. Her stomach howled at her. Lightheadedness crept over her brain like a fog. She hadn't eaten in over a day, and even that meal had been unsatisfying. She gulped hard and tried to focus, surveying the room. To her right, Enormous windows looked over a lake, bordered on each side by the curved wings of the white palace, like an enormous protective swan. The lake continued as far as she could see. The floor of the room jutted out like a balcony over the water. Although it made for an uninterrupted view, Cinder couldn't deny a feeling of dread curdling in her stomach. There was no rail to keep a person from falling off the edge.
the swell of conversation started to die out, but it was not until Cinder had breached the line of soldiers that she saw the audience to her left. The orange light flickered in Cinder's vision and didn't go off, no matter where she looked. There were a lot of glamours here. At the center was Lavanna, seated upon a massive white throne, the back of which was ornamented with the phases of the moon. She was wearing an elaborate red wedding gown. Cinder's retina display began to pick up the queen's underlying features. It was like being at the ball again, the first time she'd laid eyes on the queen and had realized it might be possible for her optobionics to see beneath the glamour. But it wasn't an easy task. Her cyborg eyes were in conflict with her own brain and the queen's manipulation, and her mind couldn't figure out what it was seeing. The result was a stream of confused data, blurred colors, fragmented lines, trying to piece together what was real and what was an illusion. It was distracting, and already giving her a headache. Cinder blinked the data away. Five tiers of seats arched around the throne, a crescent of onlookers surrounding Cinder on every side except the one that dropped off to the lake. The Lunar Court. Women wore large hats shaped like peacocks, and one man had a purring snow leopard draped over his shoulders. Dresses were made of gold chains and rubies. Platform shoes had beta fish swimming in their heels. Skin had been painted metallic silver. Eyelashes dotted with rhinestones and fish scales. Cinder had to squint against the dazzle of it all. Glamour, glamour, glamour. A chair was pushed back. Cinder's heart jumped. The bridegroom stood beside Lavanna's throne, wearing a white silk shirt with a red sash. Kai. What is this? He said, his tone somewhere between horrified and relieved. This, said Queen Lavanna, her eyes full of mirth is our entertainment for the evening. Consider it my wedding gift to you. Beaming, she traced a knuckle down the side of Kai's face. Husband. Kai ducked away from her touch, redness climbing into his cheeks. Cinder knew it wasn't embarrassment or bashfulness, though. That was all fury. She could feel it how the air crackled around him. Lavana twirled a fingernail through the air. Tonight's proceedings will be broadcast live, so my people can witness and join in the celebrations of this most glorious day. And also, so they may know the fate of the imposter who dares to call herself queen. Ignoring her, Cinder examined the ceiling. There were no cameras that she could see, but she knew Lavana had a way of creating surveillance devices that were practically invisible. Given that the queen wasn't wearing a veil, it was safe to assume any video footage would be focused on their entertainment. Lavana wanted the people to see Cinder's execution. She wanted them to lose hope for their revolution. Lavana raised her arms. Let us begin the feast. A line of uniformed servants traipsed single file from behind a curtain. The first knelt at the queen's feet and whisked a dome off a tray, holding it above his head. The queen's smirk grew as she selected a large pink prawn and pulled the flesh between her teeth. Another servant knelt before Kai, while the others surrounded the room and dropped to their knees before the audience, 
revealing trays of orange fish eggs and steamed oyster shells, braised tenderloin strips, and stuffed peppers. Cinder realized that Kai was not the only earthen in the room after all. She recognized his advisor, Contorin, seated in the second row, and the American president and the African prime minister and the Australian governor general and... She stopped looking. They were all there, just as Lavana had wanted. Heart pummeling, she scanned the servants, guards, and soldiers again, hoping that maybe Wolf, too, had been brought before the queen. But he wasn't here. Cinder, Audrey, and Pearl were the only prisoners. Worry gnawed at her. Where had they taken him? Was he already dead? She swept her gaze back to Kai. If he had noticed the food, he ignored it. She could see his jaw working, wanting to question her presence, wanting to know what the queen was planning. She could see him trying to reason his way out of this, to come up with some diplomatic angle he could use to keep the inevitable from happening. Sit down, my love, said Lavana, or you'll be disrupting the view for our other guests. Kai sat down too quickly for it to have been his own doing. He turned his smoldering glare on the queen. Why is she here? You sound angry, my pet. Are you displeased with our hospitality? Without waiting for a response, Lavana tilted her chin up and swooped her gaze from Cinder to Audrey and Pearl. Amory, you may proceed. He paced to the front of the room, smirking at Cinder as he walked past her. Though his coat had been washed of blood, he was still walking stiffly to conceal his injured leg. Amory offered his elbow to Audrey, who made a half-strangled, terrified sound. It took her a long time to accept it. She looked like she was going to be sick as Amory led her to the center of the throne room floor. All around them, the sounds of chewing and the licking of fingers persisted, as if the delicacies were every bit as interesting as the prisoners. The servants were still on their knees, holding the trays above their heads, Cinder grimaced. How heavy must those trays be? I present to the court Lynn Audrey of the Eastern Commonwealth, Earthen Union, said Amory, releasing Audrey's arm so she stood alone on her own trembling legs. She is charged with conspiracy against the crown. The punishment for this crime is immediate death by her own hand, and that her child and dependent, Lynn Pearl, be given as a servant to one of Artemisia's families. Cinder's eyebrows shot upward. Until now, she'd been concerned with her own fate, and it hadn't occurred to her that Audrey may have been brought there for any reason other than to annoy her. She wanted to not care. She wanted to feel nothing but disinterest toward her stepmother's fate. But she knew that, for all her many faults, Audrey had not done anything to warrant a lunar execution. This was a power play on Lavana's part, nothing more and it was impossible not to feel a tinge of pity for the woman. Audrey fell to her knees. I swear to you, I haven't done anything. I- Lavana raised a hand, and Audrey fell silent. An agonizing moment followed, in which Lavana's expression was unreadable. Finally, she clucked her tongue, like chastising a small child. Amory, continue. The thaumaturge nodded. 
an investigation has shown that the two invitations with which Lin Cinder's accomplices were able to invade New Beijing Palace and kidnap Emperor Kaito had been given them by none other than this woman. The invitations were meant for herself and her teenage daughter. No, she stole them, stole them. I would never give them to her. I would never help her. I hate her, hate her. She sobbed again, her shoulders hunched so far now she was practically a ball on the floor. Why is this happening to me? What have I done? I didn't. She isn't mine. Cinder was finding it easier not to care. You must calm yourself, Mrs. Lynn, said Lavanna. We will see the truth of your loyalties soon enough. Audrey whimpered and made some attempt to compose herself. That is better. You have been the legal guardian of Lynn Cinder for almost six years. Is that correct? Audrey's whole body was shaking. It's true, but I didn't know what she was, I swear. My husband was the one who wanted her, not me. She is the traitor. Cinder is a criminal and a dangerous, deceitful girl. But I thought she was just a cyborg. I had no idea what she was planning, or I would have turned her in myself. Lavana ran a fingernail over the arm of her throne. Were you with Lynn Cinder when she underwent her cyborg surgeries? Audrey's lip curled in disgust. Stars, no. Her operation was completed in Europe. I did not meet her until she was brought to New Beijing. Was your husband present for the operation? Audrey blinked, flustered. I... I don't think so. We never spoke of it, although he was gone for a couple of weeks when he went to to claim her. I knew he was going to see about a child who had been in a hovercraft accident, although why he saw fit to go all the way to Europe to be charitable, I never could understand, and his philanthropy was rewarded with nothing but heartache. He contracted letemosis on that trip, died within weeks of returning, leaving me to fare for my two young girls and this thing he left in my custody. Why did you never seek to capitalize on his inventions after his death? Audrey gawked open-mouthed at the queen. Pardon, your majesty? He was an inventor, was he not? Surely he must have left you something of value. Audrey pondered this, maybe wondering why the lunar queen would be interested in her deceased husband. Her gaze darted around the guards and lunars, no, your majesty. If there was anything of value, I never saw a single micro-unit from it. A shadow fell over her face. He left us with nothing but disgrace. Lavana's voice ran ice cold. You are lying. Audrey's eyes widened. No, I'm not. Garen didn't leave us with anything. I have evidence to the contrary, Earthen. Do you think I am a fool? What evidence? Audrey shrieked. I haven't, I, I swear to you. But whatever she meant to swear was drowned out by a flood of sobs. Cinder clenched her jaw. She didn't know what game Lavana was playing, but she knew Audrey's hysteria wouldn't make one bit of difference. She considered using her lunar gift to stop Audrey's uncontrolled sobbing so she could die with a bit of dignity, but she hardened her heart and did nothing. She might need her strength when it came time for her own trial. When it was her turn, she vowed to not dissolve into a trembling mess. Amory, 
said Lavanna, her words cutting over Audrey's sobs. One of our regiments uncovered a box of paperwork in the storage space leased to Lynn Audrey in her apartment building. Lavanna smirked. Do you still wish to maintain your defense that there was nothing of value left from your husband? No important paperwork still kept in storage? Audrey hesitated, started to shake her head, but stopped. I don't, I don't know. The paperwork, said Amory, indicated a pending design patent for a weapon with the intended purpose of neutralizing the lunar gift. We suspect this weapon was intended to be used against you, your majesty, and our people. Cinder was struggling to keep up with Amory's accusations. A weapon with the intended purpose of neutralizing the lunar gift. She barely refrained from rubbing the back of her neck, where Lynn Garen's invention, a bioelectrical security device, had been installed into her wiring. Was that what they were talking about? Hold on said Kai, his voice thundering. Do you have this paperwork that allegedly proves her guilt? Amory cocked his head. It has already been destroyed as a matter of royal security. Kai's knuckles whitened on the arms of his chair. You can't destroy evidence and then try to use it to condemn somebody. You can't expect us to believe you found this box of paperwork during an illegal search, mind you, and it held the patents for a lunar-targeted weapon, and that Lynn Audrey had some working knowledge of it. That is a lot of speculation. On top of that, you violated a number of articles in the Interplanetary Agreement when you apprehended an earthen citizen without due cause and invaded private property. Lavana cupped her chin with one hand. Why don't we argue about this later, darling? Oh, you want to argue later? Would that be before or after you've killed an innocent earthen? Lavana shrugged. That remains to be seen. Kai sneered. You can't, he abruptly cut off, forced to hold his tongue. You will soon learn, dear, that I do not like to be told that I can't. Lavana shifted her attention on Audrey again. Lynn Audrey, you have heard the charges against you. How do you plead? Audrey stammered. I I'm innocent. I swear, I would never. I didn't know. I. Lavana sighed. I want to believe you. Please, Audrey begged. Lavana ate another prawn, swallowed, licked her blood red lips. I am prepared to offer you clemency. A rustle of curiosity spread through the crowd. This decision is contingent on you disowning all legal interest to the orphan child Lynn Cinder and swearing fealty to me, the rightful Queen of Luna and the future Empress of the Earthen Commonwealth. Audrey's head was already bobbing. Yes, yes I do. Gl gladly, Your Grace, Your Majesty. Cinder glared at the back of Audrey's head. Not because her decision was any big surprise, but because she couldn't imagine it was going to be this easy. Lavana was planning something, and Audrey was falling right into her hands. Good, all charges are absolved. You may pay your respects to your sovereign. Lavana held out a hand, and Audrey, after a moment's hesitation, scurried forward on her knees and placed a grateful kiss on the queen's fingers. She started sobbing again. Does the child not show any gratitude, said Lavana. 
Pearl squeaked, but slowly shuffled forward and kissed Lavana's hands. A woman in the front row, her mouth full, clapped politely. Lavana nodded, and two guards stepped forward to drag Audrey and Pearl to the side of the room. Cinder had already put thoughts of her stepmother aside, bracing herself, when Lavana's attention landed on her. She made no attempts to withhold her delight as she said, Let us continue with our second trial. <laughs>